Well, we're beginning a, um, a brief series uh, as we uh, enter into the new year. Uh, the series is Behold, I am making all things new. The title for this series comes from two key passages, one in Isaiah 43 and the other in Revelation. Uh, in Isaiah 43 it says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honour me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The Revelation passage is the one that we began the service with from Revelation 21. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now the Isaiah passage was written for the people of Judah when they were in exile in Babylon. It gave them hope that the time would come when the Lord would take them out of Babylon and return them to the promised land. And this happened for them 70 years after they went into exile. However, when they returned... Uh, over the years and the centuries, they, what they experienced, they realised, wasn't fully what the prophets like Isaiah had described. So they were still looking forward to a time when the Lord would bring restoration through the sending of the Messiah. So by the time of Jesus, the Jews were still partly in exile. They were under the oppressive power of Rome. And they were still longing for the kingdom of God to arrive. They were wondering, when will this new thing that the Lord promised, when will it come to pass? The Revelation passage was originally written to Christians in the late 60s. They were suffering under severe persecution from the Romans. And they felt that their situation under Rome was very similar to those of the Jews under Babylon. And the book of Revelation, originally written for them, gave them hope that one day Jesus will return and put an end to all of these oppressive regimes. Now these two passages have uh, two things in common that I want to point out. Uh, First, obviously, is the theme of newness. I am doing a new thing. I am making all things new. See how Revelation announces that the promise of Isaiah is being fulfilled, is guaranteed. Now, in Greek, there are two words translated as new into English. One means new in terms of age, like a a new baby that's only a few months old. The other means new in terms of quality 
or condition, like something that's like new even if it's many years old. Halfway through this week when I was writing my sermon I spilt my drink on my laptop and the kombucha got right into the system and completely ruined all the workings on the inside. I rushed it down to the computer repair store and they gave me a quote uh, which was to fix it was um, much more expensive than simply replacing it with a brand new model. So Christmas Eve I got my brand new computer. When I opened it up though it looked like my old computer because they had transferred all of the data from my old computer onto the new computer. So all of the settings, the desktop, all of the files, the emails, everything was was there but it was on a brand new machine and in fact it runs so much better than this old machine. During that time I was saying, Lord, why, why has this happened to me? Why do I have to write my sermon all over again? Because I was, I'd lost my sermon from, on the old computer. Um, and it seems like he allowed that to happen so I don't have an illustration for my sermons this morning. Very time-consuming and expensive illustration. But that's, that's what the Bible means when it talks about newness. Not something that's brand new, but something that is already there that has been made new, that has been renewed, given a new lease of life. God doesn't destroy or discard what he's already done, what he's already made, even if it's been tainted by sin and the curse or your drink. Instead, what he does is he takes what is temporary and mortal and he transforms it to make it permanent and immortal and glorious. So the things that we'll be looking at in this series, the new birth, the new covenant, the new commandment and the new heavens and earth, they're all transformations of something that's already in place. So newness is what they have in common, but secondly... You've probably noticed they both use the imagery of water. Rivers in the desert, water in the wilderness and the spring of the water of life. The Lord describes himself as the fountain of living water. We sing a song about that here, don't we? Um, Fountain of life, I come to you. He's the fountain of living water who gives life to his people. Now we can easily miss the great significance of that imagery. We live in the driest continent on earth, yet we have instant access to water, hot and cold, whenever we want it or need it. But not so in biblical Israel. It's a very dry region. Unless you had access to a well or to a stream, which may only flow at certain times of the year, you are entirely dependent upon the rainfall from the sky, upon God who provided the rain. But we know, don't we, the experience of refreshing that comes when we drink a, cool, a drink of cool water on a hot day or the experience of seeing our lawns and our gardens spring to life and vigour after a good soaking rain. So water 
and newness go together. Our first reading this morning from John 3 also contains the image of water, but we'll see in a moment that it's actually pointed to something a bit different, to the quenching of thirst. Nicodemus came to Jesus and he claimed to know and to see something about him. Because of the signs that Jesus had been doing, Nicodemus said, you're qualified to be considered a teacher from God. But Jesus turns the tables on him as if to say, can you really see who I am? You consider me to be a good teacher from God, but what about you? Uh, You are a teacher of Israel. Are you qualified to see and to be a part of the kingdom of God? In order for this to happen, Nicodemus must rely on much more than his own ability to work out who Jesus is based just on the signs that Jesus was doing. There needs to be a complete transformation. He needs to be born again. Now what's meant by this term, born again? Nicodemus rightly recognises that it can't be no, it's not up there, sorry. That it can't be uh, going back into your mother's womb and being born a second time. So what does it mean? Well, we're fortunate because John has already told us earlier in his Gospel what the second birth is. In 1 verse 12, he says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Birth here is how you understand your identity and your status. The nature of your birth determines who you are and where you fit. And this new birth isn't according to the categories that we might place upon physical birth. Born of blood refers to my family tree, to my heritage. A Jew was told by men like Nicodemus, the Pharisees, that if they could trace their family tree right back to one of the twelve sons of Jacob, then they were a true Jew. They were also told that they must then maintain that status by observing all the laws and by observing all of the extra traditions, the traditions of the elders that the Pharisees had added to the law. But it's not membership in Israel that makes someone a child of God because God's plan is that his kingdom would be opened up to people from all nations, not just the Jews, to those who don't have the law and who have never lived under it. Being born of the will of the flesh speaks of being born out of a sexual union of a mother and a father. Uh, And the implication here is that you're born legitimately within a marriage So your identity comes from knowing both your mother and your father in that context. 
And the will of man, literally it's the will of a man or of a husband. And that spoke of a man's actions in that culture to make sure that he had a son who would become his heir, who would become the the new head of the household when he died. So in that context, your identity would come out of being the heir of the household. But none of these aspects of physical birth gives entry into the kingdom of God or into the family of the Father. We must be born of God to find our identity and our status through being a son or a daughter of the Father through the only begotten Son by being united to the Son. Being born physically brings us into a relationship with our parents as a child, with our siblings as brothers and sisters. Being born spiritually, being born of God, brings us into a relationship with God the Father through the Son. So to be born again is to be born of God. And the meaning of the new birth is clarified further in verse 5 where Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now you may be asking, how is this clarifying things? If he just said, unless one is born of the Spirit, maybe that would be clearer because the Spirit is God. So why does he add water here? Now water is sometimes used in the Scriptures as a image of the Spirit, but that can't be what he means here, otherwise he'd in effect be saying born of the Spirit and the Spirit, which doesn't make sense. Some have suggested that water here is a reference to natural birth, the amniotic fluid that's produced when a a mother's water breaks as she goes into labour. But if that was true, then this would be the only reference in ancient literature where that phrase is used in that way. So it's really just an idea imposed on it by modern interpreters. Uh, Others through Christian history have claimed that it refers to baptism as if water baptism was necessary for salvation. But we know that's not the case because baptism is only symbolic of the work of salvation that God does in us by grace. So, what does he mean by born of water and the Spirit? Well, there's a clue in verses 9 and 10. It may not jump out to us, but notice how he's, when Jesus says these things, he's, he's incredulous that Nicodemus would ask, how can these things be? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He has that role as the teacher of Israel. He would have had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Most likely he would have completely memorised all of what we know as the Old Testament. So as Jesus is speaking to him, he's expecting Nicodemus to call, be calling to, to mind the scriptures that he knew that would have confirmed what Jesus is saying. Jesus didn't come to say anything that hadn't already been said and promised and foreshadowed in the Scriptures. So we can be pretty certain, I think, that 
as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus here, he has in mind an Old Testament passage from Ezekiel 36 and 37. Ezekiel 36 from 24 says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. There's that promise again of Israel, of Judah being brought out of exile back into the promised land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine Upon you. Can you see how this is Ezekiel's version of being born of water and the Spirit? He mentions both there. The water here is not water that's used to quench thirst, but it's the water that was used in ritual washing for a person who was unclean. The law stated that someone could become unclean by a whole number of things from touching a dead body of a a human or an animal or eating an unclean animal or food, of having leprosy or some other disease or bodily discharge, a whole, whole number of things would make someone unclean and their uncleanness would require them to be separated from the community and excluded from worship until they could be made clean again. We can probably identify with that at the moment, can't we? Being separated, excluded because of uh, disease. Washing in water then was one of the steps that an unclean person had to go through in order for them to be made clean again. A priest would always wash himself as he entered the tabernacle It's what the big C, the bronze C was in the tabernacle to ensure that there would be no uncleanness on him that might defile the altar or the holy place. So it was these laws about clean and unclean and the washing that led the Pharisees to insist that everyone should wash their hands before they ate just in case they'd inadvertently touch something unclean and then put that uncleanness into their body. Uh, They didn't know about bacteria back then, Uh, so in God's sovereignty that was part of his way of protecting his people from all manner of uh, diseases as well. But it was a tradition, it wasn't required in the law. But that's why they got upset with Jesus when he didn't require his disciples to wash their hands. See, Jesus didn't follow the traditions of the Pharisees. He only followed what was actually in the law. But it wasn't just uh, that incidental contact with things uh, in the course of living in this fallen world that would make a person unclean. 
Jesus said when the Pharisees complained to him, what comes out of a person is not what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Sin is what ultimately makes us unclean, what cuts us off from the presence of God and from his people. Because the origin of sin is not from outside but from within, from our own hearts. So what is needed is a washing, not just an external washing of the body, of the flesh, but a washing of the heart. So the sprinkled water in Ezekiel symbolises the atonement that's been made for our sin by Jesus. The renewing of our hearts that comes because of Jesus' sacrifice. God forgives our sins, he purifies our hearts to make them clean and he makes us holy so that we become a suitable, clean dwelling place for him to live by his Holy Spirit. So what Ezekiel's speaking of in terms of water and the Spirit was fulfilled by Jesus in the cross where he dealt with our sin by his death and then at Pentecost when he poured out the Holy Spirit into our hearts. That's what Jesus meant by saying we must be born of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus should have got that. He should have seen that he was unclean, that he needed his sins to be atoned for, that he needed to be filled with the promised Holy Spirit. He also should have got what Jesus says next, because it's a reference to Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, they were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold there were sinews on them and the flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and shall, you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, both in Hebrew and in Greek, the words for wind or breath and spirit are the same word. And it's only the context in which they, we find them that determines the way that we translate them as wind or breath or spirit. So wind or breath, therefore, is used right through the scriptures as an image of the work of the Holy Spirit. See how Ezekiel didn't see the Spirit directly. He only heard the sound of the dry bones being raised and he saw the effect of the Spirit's work in this formation of a great army. Like Isaiah, Ezekiel was prophesying to God's people in exile and he gave them this hope that the Lord would send his spirit and breathe new life into them and cause them to live, them, live again, to restore them. Now this passage should also make us think of the day of Pentecost. Remember the disciples and the crowd in Jerusalem heard the sound of the spirit coming. They saw the effect of the Spirit as the Gospel was preached and then 3,000 people were given new life as they put their faith in the risen Jesus, a great army. See how that's the fulfilment of this promise of Ezekiel 37. So from all of these things, there's, there's some things that we can say then about the new birth, what it means to be born again. Firstly, to be born again is to be a Christian. The term that's used sometimes, born again Christian, really is a a tautology because you can't be a Christian unless you've been made a new person by the work of the Holy Spirit, unless you've been born again. Secondly, we can't cause this new birth. It's the work of God. Years ago, a man said to me, okay, Jesus tells us that we must be born again, but how can I get born again? How can a person get born again? He was fishing for an answer, something like, well, you need to do something. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to invite him into your life or your heart. But there's nothing that we can do to get born again, to make ourselves be born again. It's entirely the work of the Spirit. Just as a baby in the womb doesn't cause themselves to be born physically. The people of Israel, depicted by those dry bones, they were unable to do anything to resurrect themselves. They needed the Spirit to blow through them, through the prophetic word. person who's not born again is dead, dead in trespasses and sins. And if you're dead, you cannot cause yourself to come back to life. 
In fact, if you're not born again, you would have no desire to be born again. If you have faith in Jesus, if you have a desire to repent, to have your sins forgiven, to be born again, that's not the thing in itself that causes the new birth. In fact, that is the evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in you to draw you to himself. That he is working you, renewing your heart, enabling you to believe, enabling you to desire that new life. Faith follows the new birth. It doesn't cause it. Thirdly, the new birth isn't just about my personal private experience with God. Those Ezekiel passages were directed towards the whole nation of Israel. And so while it applied to each individual member of Israel, it spoke of the renewal and the revival of the people as a whole. And when in John 3, 7, Jesus says, don't marvel when I say to you, you must be born again, the you here is in plural. He's speaking to Nicodemus, not just as an individual man, Nicodemus, you must be born again, but he's speaking to Nicodemus as a representative of Israel. He was the teacher of Israel. The whole people of Israel need to be born again. When God does that work of the new birth in you, he not only makes you a new person, but he gives you new birth into the reality of what he's done and continues to do in Christ and into this great flow of his work in history as he guides everything towards his goal for the renewal for the new heavens and earth. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Not just that the Holy Spirit comes and makes his dwelling in you, but that the Spirit takes hold of you and he plunges you into the fountain of living water, into the the mighty river that flows from the throne of God that goes out to bring renewal, not just to me as a person, but to all of creation. Let's see how that's expressed in... Our second reading, 1 Peter 1. See how the cause of the new birth here is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't presented it to us as an option. Would you like to be born again? Well, here's how you can do it. No, he's done it. He caused it. He wasn't hung up on whether or not to preserve our so-called free will Because if any of us were left to our own free will, we'd never choose to believe. We're never truly free in our wills until we've been set free from slavery to sin by this sovereign, merciful act of God that causes a new birth. It's God's mercy that he overrides our rebellious, defiant wills and causes us to be born again. The basis for this new birth, we're told, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What did you contribute to Jesus' resurrection? The power of the Spirit at work in us is the same power 
that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. So in that sense, the new birth is just the beginning. It's the deposit that guarantees our resurrection. We could say that something of our future resurrection has been brought forward and applied to us now so that we can now live in the life of Christ and in the fullness of the Spirit as we wait for that final day. And see what we're born into. We're born into a living hope, which in verse 4 is described as an inheritance. An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading. I spoke earlier of a human father who acts to to, uh, find an heir for himself. Well, here we see our heavenly father who has acted to make us sons and heirs in Christ. Our identity, our security in his family is secure. Our status is secure. Our future is certain, no matter what griefs or trials we may face. So let us hear Jesus' call this morning. You must be born again and respond appropriately by entrusting ourselves to him. While, as I said, faith does not cause the new birth, that doesn't take away from the fact that we are still commanded to believe, just as Nicodemus was called to believe. If you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, but desire to know the life that he gives, then the Holy Spirit will enable you to do that. And in fact, he's already at work in you to draw you to Jesus. If you already believe then be renewed in this assurance that you have been born again to this living hope, that Christ is in you, that you are a son or a daughter of the Father. Don't allow the the world or the pressures of life rob you of this assurance. Lay hold of the truth of who you are in Christ. Let's pray.